Yeah, do some of that. Nice to see you. I'm Pastor Mike. Thanks for being here this morning, um, whether you're in person or online. In fact, say hello to the people online. They're on that camera right over there. Just turn around and just wave your little hand over there. We're glad to have you here. Yeah, thank you for being here. Come anytime. We'd love to see you. Um, good worship, Pastor Tammy. Is that second song new? Yeah. That was great. Can we sing that again at the end? <laughs> I woke up this morning to the to some worship, 6 a.m. Um, it wasn't the birds; it was my neighbor, um, who, um, saying this delicately, has some health problems, and occasionally he will blare his 1980s music for be able to be heard for miles around. I rather enjoy it. I grew up with that music, but uh, the reason I say he's worshiping. It be, is because worship, um, at least from a particular vantage point, is a move, a, a, a vision, a, an action, a posture that aims somewhere else, right? When, when we, when we, or at least it, it sort of does. I'll, I'll explain more in a bit, but worship is, is taking you somewhere else, at least that kind of worship. I experienced similar, something similar to that this weekend, uh, earlier this weekend. Actually, <laughs> weekends don't start on Thursday. It was Thursday. <clears throat> uh, uh, at a, uh, when I went back to Pittsburgh uh, for a funeral, the, the wife of, of my first pastor passed away. Uh, this is the pastor of our church from the time I was about whew, like four until I was 12. Very, shaped me like maybe very few experiences have in the whole family. And uh, Jane passed away. She was 79. Um, the beautiful service. Um, but I'm in Pittsburgh, and because I'm in Pittsburgh and don't get over there much anymore, mom and dad uh, moved from there years ago, and now mom lives in Florida. I, I was visiting people that I hadn't seen for, in some cases, 20, 25 years. And at times I was deeply emotional because I was going somewhere, right? I was going back. I was, I was, in a sense, I was worshiping the past, (laughs) dreaming about it and thinking about it and desiring it in many ways. Um, Worship can be that way. Is it, is it that way for you? When you, when you come or, or you join in some form, are you escaping something? It's a temptation to, to see worship that way as an escape. It's an exercise in faith, to be sure, in largely invisible things that are presumably elsewhere, right? So if you're, if you're worshiping something invisible that, that doesn't seem to be here, it would seem that worship is taking you somewhere. It's a... Uh, it's a reflection on uh, the power of God. It's a, it's a remembrance of the greatness of God, even when we might not experience the fullness of it or the frequency of it. Are you with me? We're, we're talking about, we're singing about, we're praying to a God that is somewhere bigger than we can imagine, more powerful than we often experience. So worship tends to take us somewhere. We're trusting 
oftentimes that much good is happening, that God is good all the time, even though I look around and I oftentimes don't see it. Worship tends to take us to a place of imagining the good when we don't know it. It's a believing in the big, even though we oftentimes know very little. And that stuff is true. Even Jesus said, it's not for you or me to know the time the Father or the seasons that the Father has fixed. There's stuff we don't know. Paul says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He's not able to understand them. There is this separation, this lack of understanding, yet we pray in that direction and to him and we worship. Maybe Kanye West would help. He says, you've been down so much, you don't even know what's upstairs. We don't. In large degree. God is up to so much, but it's always not clear. So we exercise faith even when we worship. Yeah, but here's the, here, here's the reality we need to grab onto. Our faith, our worship, our prayers, our spiritual disciplines, they aren't intended to extract us or separate us from the realities of this life. Can I say that again? Our worship, our embrace, our faith, our prayers, our connection to God is not intended to extract us from the realities of this life. Worship is not a delusional activity. It's not a a denial of what's real. If it is, it's not worshiping the God of the Bible. Jesus promotes a Christian life that is like a tattoo. It is grounded on the skin. But it is always more than meets the eye. Don't you almost always want to ask somebody why they have that tattoo? Some of them are like, I really want to know. It's like, what in the world drove you to put that on there? But I can almost guarantee you there is a deep, deep reason. Even the one that seems obvious, like it says mom with a heart around it. Oh, he or she loves her mom. It's obvious. No, but you ask about mom and you're going to get a story much deeper than you could have possibly imagined. Christianity of Jesus is like a tattoo. It is rooted. It is grounded on the skin, but is much deeper than we really can imagine. It is like baptism. Why do we still baptize? Why don't we use some other modern method of transfer of lordship or ownership, as Justin said? Well, we could, I suppose, but it's been done forever. And it is rooted in this water, this basic element of life. We, we immerse ourselves down into it and come out of it. And we're standing in it and we're soaking wet. And we are praising God in the midst of this The song we sang that Eric introduced said something like, your, your glory causes me to fall on my knees. The glory of God is connected with my knees grounded into the dirt of this life. Christian worship is not an escape. It's waking up. 
It's in many cases, it's facing the realities of life with the presence of the one who created it. And this is critically important for us to understand given the context of our society. And this is what I mean by this. This deserves a message of its own. I'm going to try to capture it. More and more and more, the context of our society drags us out of reality. The mainstream media is painting pictures based on uh, their own biases and in in many cases the extreme things that happen in this world. Social media garners you, as does the gaming world, a fake persona in which to engage the realness of this world, but not as a real person oftentimes. Identity politics, entertainment constructs, all draw us into this sort of a fake being engaging extreme values in in sort of a life, a real life distancing performance. Life is more and more and more being constructed and organized in such a way that we are finding escape from real life whenever we want it. Throw drugs and pornography and every other thing within our reach easily and cheaply that causes us to engage elsewhere. Christianity is becoming faster and faster and faster. The only thing that actually keeps us awake to the truth and the messes of this life rather than promising to escape us from it. Watch out for this and keep your faith in the truth of God. Keep your faith with the truth of God integrated with the truth of your life. This is why one of the most challenging People that Jesus faced, peoples, were the hypocrites. And it is the thing that breaks Christianity down faster than anything in this world. Someone that is claiming to know the truth, but doesn't live in it. All of it. We should not lose sight of the invisible, the eternal, but neither should we deny the visible. And the physical. And as always in this life, we must be striving to live within the integration of the two. Jesus personifies this gritty, organic, spiritual life. And the Gospels narrate it. We're seeing it time and again through the book of Mark. We're going to look at chapter 11. And although there are many lessons here, I want you to see see how Mark and Peter, and and we say that because it's fairly commonly held that Mark is transcribing and capturing Peter's experiences. Mark and Peter, look look at how they deal with and, and incorporate the preeminence of God and the incidence of life. The preeminence of God and the incidence of life together. Here we are, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Through, through six. <clears throat> As Jesus and his uh, disciples uh, approached Jerusalem and they came to a couple places near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you 
And just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied it at a doorway. Tied at a doorway. And uh, as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. <laughs> Standard, amazing, yet common day in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus somehow foreknows that there's a colt tied in the next city that's never been ridden. But the act of going and getting a colt and untying it and people saying, why are you taking that colt? And saying, well, Jesus wants it. And then they let him go. It's pretty normal. From all points of view, that thing is just a very standard yet odd kind of thing to do. Nothing really all that miraculous about it, but it was miraculous. It was actually a prophecy. The preeminence of God in the mundane of life. Then they don't exaggerate it. I love that about the Gospels. Maybe, maybe as much as I love anything else about Scripture is how what is in there is just basically what happened. Nothing superfluous, nothing extraneous, nothing exaggerated. And many times, nothing even commentated. Like there's no commentary from either of them on this. This is what happened. What the king of the universe tells them to do, <laughs> they do. And then they just tell the truth. What is Jesus? He doesn't make up some story. What do, you, what do we do when the person who owns the thing or the people that are guarding the thing want to know what we're doing? Tell them that I need it and I'll bring it back. Okay. Good enough. You don't have a better story than that? There's this huge thing coming. It's real important. You need to sacrifice for the greater things of God. Well, that's all true, but the basic truth, it's just told and they just let it be. I will say tangentially, Life is monumentally easier if you tell the truth. It's monumentally difficult to get out of a life where you've not been telling the truth. But once you get there, it's a lot easier if you just keep telling the truth. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? (laughs) You have to write stuff down. He's writing, capturing the gospel. They put their cloaks over it. What happened next, Peter? They put their cloaks on it. Then what? They sat, he sat on it. Okay. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Basically, they were shouting Old Testament phrases that indicated that this was, in fact, the Messiah riding this colt. These prophecies were all coming true. And Jesus, the, the, the Messiah had been promised for, for generations upon generations. And Jesus had proven that he was the one. And the masses are recognizing it and honoring him as such. And in alignment with the scriptures that they had been left with for generations. In the book of Mark itself, this is a culmination. It's a pivotal point. Jesus has passed the tests and he's been formed and is forming into the declarations and the affirmations of God. That's what we've seen throughout the book of Mark. In the beginning of it, remember, God, the the, the dove descends, the spirit descends like a dove and a voice from heaven 
presumably the father to this. This is, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Just a few chapters ago, uh, the voice comes again and said, this is my son. Paraphrasing, you should listen to him. And Jesus has proven over and over and over and over again in degrees that are beyond what can be captured in hundreds of thousands of books, how he is the king, the son of God. It's been declared. It's been demonstrated. He's been displaying his faith, his authority, his deity. And for, for a moment that should have come before and should have lasted longer, right in this moment, it's happening. The masses are saying yes to it. For the first time, Jesus is being honored appropriately. He's being honored by his His creation, all that's been created through him, is singing back to him, is praising back to me just as it should, and in particular, his beloved humanity. Back up from this moment, Jesus being hailed as king, the people shouting praises, bringing glory to him, pointing at him. And I want to ask you this, do you know that that is how life works best? Do you know that's how it's supposed to be, not only in that moment, but this one? Not in those lives, but our lives. To be worshiping and praising Jesus and thanking God. Do you know that you are not designed to get much attention? (laughs) It's hard to believe in this world because it's all about that. You are not designed to be the center of attention. The more attention you get, arguably, the worse you are. Which might explain where we are socially in this world. Because everybody, everybody, no one's excluded from this, is trying to get some attention. We see the extremes that people go to to get attention. But the reality is you can't walk through your day and not come up with a handful of ways that you tried to get attention or that you got it. And the more we get the worse life is. We are not designed to be the center of attention. Jesus is. Do you go out of your way to give Jesus the seat of honor? Do you go out of your way to honor him? Do you uh, intentionally, even proactively, diminish your own presence, your own identity, and defer recognition uh, and attention to God. And what do you do if by chance someone does look at you? Do they find you pointing to him? Do you know that this is the best way to live? Do you believe that? Pointing at Jesus, not because of what, what, what we've done. Not even because of what he's done in us and for us. That's part of our testimony. But we point to Jesus irrespective of ourselves. You can point to Jesus today, even if your life is a wreck and you just can't get it together. Because he loves you. He's died for you. And your future is secure in him, irrespective of your life. In fact, in that condition... You point better than anybody. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's hard, isn't it? Imagining dodging and deferring the kudos that come your way, particularly if they're few and far between. 
We need so much affirmation. (laughs) I'm shocked at how much affirmation I need. I can do the simplest thing, and if it happens to go well, I'm like, anybody see that? (laughs) Did somebody see what I made? I'm like still like a seven-year-old. Tammy, did you see the cool deck that I made out there? Do you like me better? We need so much affirmation, but we're not built to be the center of attention God is. Have you ever considered that your life would be well-lived if all it did was point to God? Have you ever stopped to realize that if you never accomplished really anything, but you understood deep in your soul that you were loved by God, saved by Jesus, secured in eternity for him, that if that's all your life ever amounted amounted to, it would be like the greatest life that you could offer. Even if no one sees it, if no one ever sees your life, it can be phenomenally beautiful to God. If you're pointing to him, if you're pointing to his son, it's beautiful. You can be beautiful apart from doing anything great because your primary role is to point to Jesus. And if you point to Jesus, it's beautiful, even if nobody sees it. It would be good to learn to experience the deep satisfaction of God in the lifting of him rather than the lifting of ourselves. To know what it means to to feel true satisfaction and peace that comes from the lifting of God rather than scrambling and grappling for it ourselves. So there's this amazing thing going on and everyone's cheering for Jesus finally and he enters Jerusalem and then uh, things die down, I suppose, and then he goes into the temple courts He looks around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So the the day ends, he sees stuff that's going around in the temple, but there's no commentary on it. The next day, they leave Bethany. Jesus is hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree. He went to find out if it had any fruit. This is an unusual interjection here. He goes over to this fig tree after the the triumphal entry. He goes over to this fig tree to see if it has any fruit. And he reached it. He found out it had nothing but leaves on it because it was not the season for fruit. Then he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. (laughs) Does that sound like a joke that I would normally throw in right here? And I'll be going, no, I'm kidding. This is what it really says. That's what it says. Jesus goes over to the fig tree. It has no fruit. And what seems like, stay with me here. It seems like he acts like a toddler right here. It's like throwing a little tantrum. What? No fruit? Well, I hope no fruit ever grows on you again. As a matter of fact, it never will. And then, and then Peter, Peter, Mark says, and his disciples heard him say it. Well, why do you put that in here? Because it's totally out of character. We would say, well, you know, no, is it? No, and more than one person heard him say to that fig tree, don't have any more fruit. 
I'm going to jump ahead to verse 20 because this resolves then. In the morning, the next morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Teacher, look, the fig tree you cursed last night withered. Now, the point of this is probably obvious. <laughs> it's not. I, who knows? What does this mean? Nobody really agrees. If you, to, to have some degree of confidence in what this means is to be overconfident. It's a hard passage. Like I said, what it seems is going on is that Jesus is egocentric. It's uncomfortable to read what appears to be Jesus in need, a fig tree out of season. <laughs> what did the fig tree do wrong? It's just kind of, you know, it's going through its seasonal thing. And it's unduly cursed for failing to provide what Jesus wanted. It's hard to read it other way. It sounds bratty. Doesn't sound like Jesus. Unless, unless, you think about it this way. As one of the Godhead, the Son, as one of, one of the, the nature of God, he's egocentric by definition. Has anybody ever said to you, or have you said to anybody else, hey man, the world doesn't revolve around you. You ever heard that? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever looked in the mirror and gone, man, you need to lighten up. The world doesn't revolve around you. Because it doesn't. Hey, you're not the center of the universe, bro. Everything isn't, doesn't just revolve around you. And it's true. But God is at the center of the universe. Everything does, quite literally, revolve around God. The Bible says time and again that, that God is a jealous God. J.I. Packer explains that this is not the kind of jealousy that is, a, that is a, an amalgamation, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, frustration and envy and spite, like human jealousy. That's not what godly jealousy is. Godly jealousy is a demand for the prominence that is God's. It is merely a reflection of fact. It's like someone saying to the prince that's recently been installed at a great nation, who died and made you king? And the prince says, my dad. I am the king. This is Jesus. He is the king. It does all revolve around him. And the father appointed him. The Gospels, among other things, are a recounting of Jesus being installed as the king, putting him in his rightful place. What Jesus experienced yesterday was exactly the way things should be all the time. Everything revolving around me. And it's not egocentric in the way we typically think of it as selfish egocentrism. It starts with just being true. Listen to the way Paul puts it in Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, 
things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. You see the meshing of, of the worlds as I was describing earlier. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and all things are held together by him. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, the resurrection, so that in everything, in everything, including death, he has the supremacy. Who died and made Jesus king? God, the Father. He is by definition the center When God is jealous, when the Bible says God is a jealous God, when God demands worship, praise, uh, resources to be sacrificed to him, Jesus, he, he is saying, I'm at the center. This is the way the world works. This is your place. When Jesus demands to be the center. He's following the father's pattern. There will be no other gods before me. But here's the thing more personally, Jesus, God himself is crying out for a loyalty. And his cry is rooted in love. I asked you earlier in the picture of the triumphal entry, if you know that this is the best and most beautiful way to live with Jesus at the center and everything in our lives aside or laid before him. That is your best and most beautiful life. So when God demands that he be at the center, when Jesus says, whether directly or not, I should be riding the horse. Everyone else should be praising me. He's doing it because it is best for you. It's not because he's getting something. He has everything. He has no need of anything. When he says, revolve around me, it is because it is how you were created and it is best for you. God is the only, only only being for whom jealous passion for his own glory is a supreme act of selfless love. Whether you're an obscure fig tree or a world popular figure, the question is, what place is God? And the fruit will flow out of your life in reflection to that. Are you bearing fruit commensurate with the God of the universe or with some other God? If it's not the God of the universe, if Jesus isn't king, you are withering. Everything should be praising God just like the people in the triumphal entry, including the fig tree. No matter what the season is, everything should be giving and praising God. And the fig tree was just sitting there saying, hey man, uh, that's not my gift. It's not my time. It's not what I do. And Jesus is like, well, 
That's it for you. You've judged yourself. Look what happens next. On reaching Jerusalem, he enters the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. I think he was a little tight because he saw this last night, if you recall. He saw money changing going on in the courts and he said, I'm sleeping on this. And then he sees the fig tree and he's like, okay, this is the same. He overturned the tables, the money changers, and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He taught them, it's not written, my house will be, it is, it is, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. You see the same pattern here. The temple is the house of God, and as such, should be making God king, as would be reflected by their posture and their attitude and their words of prayer. That's what should have been going on in the temple. They should have been protecting the space of glorifying God. Instead, they are leveraging it for their own benefit and their own glory. It's a bad fig tree. Where is the fruit that should be growing on the vine in that space? Where is the prayer that should be rising as a provision for God? Like the fruit from a fig tree for Jesus. What seems like going on here, what, what Mark and Peter are capturing is Jesus is taking hold of his, albeit temporary, placement in first place by the people, this triumphal entry, to exercise some demands for things to be as they should be. And look who else is worried about being knocked off their high hill, bumped from the center position. He's turning over tables and the chief priests are like, um... We need to look for a way to kill this guy. Because he's going to dislodge us from the center of all things. The whole crowd was amazed at his teaching and worshiping him as king. And what were the Pharisees? These ones anyway. Hypocrites. Fakes. Jesus said, whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, dead in the inside. So when the disciples asked Jesus about the withered fig tree, he responds like this, have faith in God. Have faith in God. I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Sounds so inviting. And our experience tells us it's not so much. Because we've all prayed for big things and we've, we've trusted as much as we can. We've believed as much as we can. We've doubted as little as we can. And God hasn't answered I tell you the truth, have faith. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. What's he saying here? What's he mean? Have faith in God. Trust God with God-sized things. There's no real 
it's really nonsensical for us to offer a prayer that says, mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. That wouldn't be a prayer that would make sense. God wouldn't, he would be like, what are you doing? But we do see Jesus saying things that don't normally happen. There's things that God is doing in this world, doing in you, doing with us that are beyond any human doing. And the only way to arrive there is to have faith in God that he is doing it and can do it. If God has called you into a God-sized thing through prayer, right, which is radically different than through your own needs, you know, we don't, we don't, he's not saying pray for big things that you want. He's saying pray, pray, and the God things, the things that God is up to, he will include you in, and he will accomplish those things, and you'll be a part of it, but you've got to trust him. If you take the reins, it cannot work. Think of how silly it looks for us to take the God-sized thing that God has called us into with a shovel and trying to move that mountain into the sea. <laughs> but a lot of us are doing it. Man, we're doing it. Trust God. The reality is humans can only do little things. You know that? You can only do little things. Occasionally, you can do things that are slightly bigger than other people. But those are still relatively small to God. I hate to break it to you. You're not that impressive. And you're not accomplishing very much. In this world. Unless you're engaged with the big things that God is doing. And then you're doing everything. This is why, this is why the Bible tells us over and over again. Don't compare. Don't compare. It does two things. One First of all, no one compares himself with somebody great. We always compare ourselves with somebody less than us, right? <laughs> we say compare against them. Look at me, compare to that person. First of all, it pushes that person down, you know, and it makes you feel better than you should because what we should be doing, remember, these are all small things, and my, little, my small thing is slightly bigger than your small thing, so I feel good about myself. But look at the mountain thing that God wants us to be involved in. Go there. Things that are impossible with people are possible with God. It's Luke 18. Mountain moving initiatives are God things, and we are included via prayer. That is, intimate, ongoing, devoted, enduring connection with God. It is that kind of a life out of which God-sized initiatives and invitations come. They don't typically come out of knee-jerk requests to a sudden big need in your life, which is when most people pray. When Jesus says, out of prayer come these God-sized initiatives that I want you to trust God, he's saying, out of an interactive, ongoing, consistent, humble obedience to God on a daily basis, you will find the big things of God and you will join with him and he will do them. Have faith if you want to be in the midst of mountain-moving God stuff, you've got to be single-eyed in your devotion to him. Have faith. Go back to the t- triumphal entry. The posture for all things is first and foremost us being uh, 
deter, down, drawn down and God being drawn up. I must decrease, John says, uh, he must increase. Think about the fig tree. And then he finishes this way. He says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Wow. Have faith in God. There is something big going on here. If you will allow me to be the center of it, I will include you in it. But you must continue to trust me, not yourself. And by the way, forgive. Don't forget that at the heart of even the big mountain-moving initiatives of God is always the gospel on a very granular level between you and me and others. Don't get so caught up in the big things, even of God, that you forget the basic idea of all of life to be this merciful interaction between the people of God and the people that are far from God. At the core of our human experience is always first the flow of mercy. There is no initiative of God that justifies the downtrodden of other people, the distancing and the division that occurs. It does not, it is not possible. You must trust God even in the mercy and the forgiveness of one another, even of your enemies, he says. This cannot be part of the big things of God. If you are trusting me, you must forgive. If you want to be a part of the big things of God, you must be right with your brother and your sister. Just like the fig tree that lost its ability to bear fruit, as it was designed, because it did not share its fruit in the most significant moment, the joy of your forgiveness, your forgiveness is lost when it has run dry among you. If you're not feeling the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, you've probably stopped it up with your lack of the same. And God's saying, you got to get there to be a part of mountain moving initiatives that I want you involved in. So I go back to where I started. Our worship is faith in big God things, in a big God, but it is connected to the difficult realities of this life. It is dependent upon our continuous prayer and our forgiveness of others. And you will have fruit that will tell a very true story about this one and the next. All right, did you come back up to sing that second song again or did you pick a different one? Second one? Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, all right, let me wrap it up so we can do this. Um, There's so much going on, so much that's possible. Some we can see, some we don't see. Jesus invites us in, provides deep purpose, inexplicable peace in this world. Live by faith continuously. What are the big God things that God's drawing into? Work that out with one another. As opposed to the big things that you want to do. Where's that tension? Keep the faith. Let the fears flee. Don't give up. He's doing big stuff. Put him first. And let your fruit follow that faith. Worship God. Put him first. Talk about how to do that in life. In real practical ways. Don't be afraid of the inevitable frequent pain and the mess of life. Worship the God who's ordained it all. He's up to good all the time. Walk with Jesus who strengthens you through it with purposes we don't always know. Pray continuously. 
Talk to others about how they do that. Bear fruit in and out of season all the time in alignment with God. Pour yourself out. Give, serve, forgive. Let's pray. God, with you at the center, with Jesus leading and the spirit guiding us, it is well. And we are well. So be it. As we point to Jesus, as we point to his salvation, as we point to his forgiveness today, how sweet, how sweet that is.